Not only is he <laughs> the writer, but he's also the producer and the director. We're just extras. I was with a, a family member a couple of weeks ago talking about prayer. She didn't believe in God, but, but her mother was in the throes of death. Mother was dying. And as she was describing to me, the Holy Ghost said, tell her about Philippians. And I said, I'm a chaplain. I'm, that's illegal. If I say the wrong thing, I can get sued. Holy Ghost said, try it. Take a chance. I said, what, 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 it, what it is that you sound like you need, you need an increase in peace and a decrease in stress. And she said, yeah. I said, you read the Bible, right? You have in your, in, your, in, your, in your experience? She said, yeah. I said, have you ever heard of the passage that says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God which passes understanding will keep your heart and guard your mind. And when I finished, she said, chaplain, that's what I need. It's amazing what God can do. And I taught her how to pray simple prayers in one breath. I said, whenever you get stressed, whatever you can say in one breath, give it to God. I said, and that's called breath prayers. And she called me three weeks later and she said, chaplain, every time I get stressed, I, I pray breath prayers and it's been helping me. Not only was she reading Philippians, she started reading the entire Bible. There is power in prayer. The last time I was here, we recorded the sermon, and I got messages from all around the country of how your audio department has been blessing them in the last month and a half. Over 250 views and about 50 downloads have been listened to and watched because of your audio ministry. Hear me, even Kim Kardashian and Chris Humphreys got a copy of the sermon. Who knows if they listened? Who knows? Father in heaven, we know that our words don't do anything. We're just extras in this thing. Father, you scripted this thing, and we come into your house worshiping you because you are great. You are mighty, and you are awesome. We couldn't think this thing up if we had a thousand lifetimes to think about it. And if we came up with the plan, we couldn't make it happen in our own power. So, Father, we're just glad to be in the party. Father, we come into your word now. As we open it up, we ask uh, that you help us see ourselves and who you are in a new and a special way. In your name we do pray. Amen. When I was in elementary school, I loved recess, I loved snacks, but I hated fire drills. Love recess, love snacks, but I hated fire drills because they were unannounced. The sirens scared you. I hated the whistles. I felt like cattle being prodded to go in a certain direction. I, I hated fire drills. While I hated the fire drills, I never forgot what I learned when I had to do them. I may not know the pull, the aim, the squeeze, and the sweep of the fire extinguisher that I learned when I was 30 years old. But I remember the stop, drop, and roll of the fire drill. I learned when I was about six or seven, when I smell smoke and I go to the door, don't touch it with my palm, touch it with the back of my hand. I learned some things in elementary school, very simple. Whenever there's fire, you stop, you drop, and you roll. Very simple. But with all of the preparation and practice, you would think that when the time came to stop, 
drop, and roll, I would be able to stop, drop, and roll. Uh, But when I got my turn, I didn't stop, I didn't drop, and I didn't roll. I did something else. When my pillow caught on fire one morning many, many, many years ago, you could see the flames rising up from the pillow. And when I saw the flames, I froze. And my brother came running down the hall telling my foster mother, Joey didn't start a fire. What she did was the opposite of what I did. She was in her late 60s at the time. She jumped up, grabbed an expensive comforter off of her bed and ran to fight the fire. Why I froze. She acted. The fire almost got underneath the stairs and it would have burned our house down because I froze. But she acted quickly and heroically. See, the preparation didn't help me. Because the reaction to the crisis was primal and instinctual. I was acting like a boy instead of a man because I was a boy. What do you do when you are a man and trouble comes your way and you respond the opposite of that which you intend? We're going to see how in this message entitled, What a Man. What a Man. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Read verses 10 to 13. We'll consider verses 10 to 13. And I'm reading from the New International Version of the Bible. Genesis 12, verses 10 to 13. If you don't have it, it's also on the screen. And the Bible says, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know that you're a good-looking woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When I was a kid, we used to sing the song in AYS, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I I am one of them, and and so are you. Every time I'd hear the song, I would hate it because I knew what was coming. I'd have to stand up, turn around, do some twirls. But before Father Abraham had some sons, before he is the father of the faithful, he's just a regular husband named Abram with one barren but beautiful wife named Sarai. He has the promise of God because God has told him to leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Abram shows us the difference between belief and faith. He shows us the difference between belief and faith. Belief is having an idea about something, a concept about a thing. But faith is responding to the idea. There's a difference between belief and faith. Belief is hearing the music that no one else hears, but faith is dancing to the music and looking stupid while you're doing it. There's a difference between belief and faith. Genesis 12:4 says, Abram leaves. We can close up shop right there. Abram leaves. He leaves his father, he leaves his country, and he leaves as the Lord tells him. God showed up out of nowhere 
I said only God could think it up. God showed up out of nowhere. He had never thought of God. He had never heard of God. And he shows up and says, leave everything that you know. Isn't it an unpredictable God to show up and ask the improbable, ask you to believe the invisible, expect the incredible, and seek the impossible? I'm glad I serve an unpredictable God. What about you? He says, leave, and Abram goes. So it is, Abram leaves Ur and travels north, and he comes to Shechem, singing, I'm, I'm a pilgrim, I'm a stranger. I can tarry, I can tarry but a night. And as he sings, Sarah responds with antiphonal praise, do not detain me, for I am going to where the fountains are ever flowing. And while they're singing, Lot would, would, would do the call and response with his family and say, I, I don't live here, I'm just passing through. They were sojourners going through the desert. And when they come to Shechem, the Bible says, at that time, Canaanites are in the land, and the Lord appears to Abram and says... To your offspring, I will give this land. So he builds an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. First, he responds to God's word with faith. The Bible first says the Lord said to Abram. Now the Bible says the Lord appears to Abram. When God appears, Abram worships. If I had time to preach this morning, I would tell you not only do you need the word of God, but you need the presence of God. When God speaks to you, you respond in faith. But when he shows up, you worship. But I don't have time. The Bible says, ah, God shows up and appears to him and says to him, the land that you're sitting on will one day belong to you. But the Bible says there's a problem. It's being occupied by the Canaanites. Uh, if I had time to preach, I would tell you that God will give you some dreams that you don't possess while you don't possess them, but you have to worship as if you already do. Have you ever walked through a subdivision that was being built and thanking the foreman for the house that's being built just for you? Abram is a dreamer and he's serving an improbable God. Before I went to Oakwood, I dropped out of school. I was unemployed. I was working a dead-end job. But I would be reading the college bulletins and planning the classes I wasn't taking and going online to the places I wanted to visit to preach before I ever stepped foot on the campus. God promises the future to his children in the present before they can taste it, before they can see it, and before they can touch it. And when God shows up and does this, the Bible says, Abram builds an altar. In the sequence of time, Abram goes towards the hills of Bethel and pitches his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he builds an altar. Then the Bible says he begins to call on the name of the Lord. Ha, oh, what, what a man. I want to be that kind of man, a man who hears the word of God and responds to the word of God. I want to be that kind of man. A man who follows God and builds altars. A man who seeks after God and who calls on his name. He is obeying God and walking with God and building altars to God and worshiping God. That is the kind of man I want to be. Whenever you're dealing with men, you want to look at strengths before limitations. Point out what he's doing right before critiquing with your improvements. 
There is power in a worshiping man. When men worship and see men worship, there is power and synergy. Most people learn about religion from their mothers and their grandmothers because our fathers are in jail. And most people, when they grow up, if they're a man, they associate religion with weakness. But when they see a man worshiping and seeking after God, there is power when men worship. Because all of the things we've learned about Bible reading and prayer and meditation, we've learned from the women in our lives. But there is a power when a family sees a man worshiping an invisible God. I never saw that from my father. I declare my children will see that in me. You might see what you want to see on the outside. Abram was new to the faith. He was struggling with various things. He didn't have a reputation, but God is going to change his name after a while. Of all of the things that I am and everything I hope to be, if you look into my heart, you'll see a worshiper in me. Everything you might see on the outside, if you look into my heart and see the essence of who I am, you'll see a worshiper in me. And the Bible says in verse 10, now there's a famine in the land. And Abram goes down into Egypt to live there for just a little while because the famine is severe. He's living in the lush of the Judean Valley. And instead of staying where the altar is, he travels to a dry place. First, he goes to Negev. It's in southern Palestine. And the famine got even more severe. Isn't it always interesting that when we're worshiping God and following God, when things are going right, famines just pop up. We're trying to do the right thing then the text messages start popping up. Trying to stay clean, all of a sudden our friends start calling. You know you can't associate with half of them because you know they'll get you in trouble. We're budgeting our money and we're trying to pay a faithful tithe, then our car breaks down. And whenever a famine comes, the thing that we prepare to do, we do the opposite. And we go to Egypt and we say we're just going to be there for a little bit. And the Bible says in verse 11 through 13, as he's about to enter Egypt. I love the prepositions of the Bible. As he's about to enter Egypt, he says to his wife, you, you a good looking woman. You, you, you fine, girl. Don't you know how you look? The Egyptians are going to say this is his wife and they're going to kill me and let you live. Say, say that you're my sister. It'll just be between me and you. You ain't got to tell them who you really are. And I will be treated well because of you. And my life will be spared because of you. Sarai is about 65 years old. But she looks good. She's new to the faith. She was following her worshiping husband. She is beautiful, but she is barren. That's another message. She's moving around with a man who's listening to an invisible being. He ain't got no GPS, no five-year plan, no goals, no destination, but because he's worshiping God, she's following a spiritual man with no goals. She's not the, she's not the mother of all nations yet. Her name hasn't been changed yet. 
What she doesn't know is that her children won't be the, won't be the result of test tube science or in vitro fertilization. God is going to open up her barren room and, and take 23 chromosomes from her husband and 23 chromosomes from her and put it together and attach the ovum and the egg. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. She will be the mother of all nations, but not yet. She's beautiful, but she's barren. The Bible tells us that Abram is 75 years old. And he's new to the faith. He's new to this following God thing. He's doing the best he can. He's affluent. He has property. He has family. He has investments. But none of it matters in a recession because there's a famine. This man has the promise of God. He has the presence of God, but he does not have the power of God because he does two things. He assumes and he presumes. What did I say? He assumes and he presumes. He is a worshiping, faithful, insecure man. He's scared of where his next meal comes from, but he's still worshiping God. He's trying to pay the bills and he's worried, but he's still faithful to an invisible God. What a man. Abram assumes that they would call her beautiful and that they would connect her to, to being his wife. And he assumes that they will kill him and let her live. He has no proof. He has no frame of reference. But because the famine has clouded his judgment, he assumes the unknown. He's been walking with this, with this invisible God through Iraq, through Iran, through Syria and Lebanon. But when the grass withers and the flower fades, he begins to assume because of fear and he calculates his future without God. Oxford says to assume, it means to suppose to be the case without evidence and without proof. Abram assumed. Not only does he assume, but he also presumes. In verse 13, when he says, say that you're my sister so I will be treated well for your sake. In my life, my life will be spared because of how good you look. He's spitting game at her. He's he trying to hustle a woman that's been walking with him for years. To presume is to suppose that something is the case on the basis of probability. To take for granted that a thing exists or is the case. Hear me. His presumption is based upon faulty, upon faulty logic. Because the faulty logic is an assumption that has no frame of reference. And his faulty logic of which he's basing his preposition on is neither proven nor tested. He's trying to live by logic instead of by faith. Because of his presumption and assumption, his family almost ended up in consumption. He presumed that his destiny was tied to his woman's looks. God had been watching over him for all of these years. God had been watching over him and leading him through the desert. God had been leading him to where he never went before. And now when there's a famine, he does what is instinctual. God has been watching over him. And the Bible says something interesting. In the season of the famine, he goes down. Not down in worship. 
Not down in prayer, not down building another altar, but down to Egypt. To a place that wasn't promised, to a place that he was not led to. And when you read verses 14 to 20, Abram is almost consumed because he assumed what wasn't proven and presumed the impossible. And it ended up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy that almost led to his destruction. What a man. The same man who was just worshiping God now doubts God. And he's using his woman as a buffer from the pressures of life. We do, we do the exact same thing. In every exploitation movie, the men, when they begin to encounter problems, they start projecting their issues on their female counterparts. And they say, it's your fault that I lost my job. It's your fault that you got pregnant and had this kid. I never wanted him or her. It's your fault that I never rose up and went past high school. It's your fault. And, and, and she starts perpetuating. I wish you were like, then, 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 you, then they call the police. <laughs> then the Medea comes. Trying to use the women as a buffer from the normal pressures in life. They live in the desert. Of course a famine is going to come. If God leads you through a desert, you better believe he's going to provide for you in the desert. Whenever we read of when these dictators lose power, we rejoice. We rejoice... Because the masses are taking back power from their oppressor. It's called bottom-up empowerment. We rejoice and identify with the 99%. We forget that there was a time when we also celebrated the leader. We were attracted to the charisma. We were attracted to the bravado. We were attracted to the leadership. We celebrated the leader. But when his government begins to fall, the cracks in the plaster are clearly seen. And when the commandos come in and the SEAL teams come in to swoop in to finalize the coup, you always see this strong dictator grab a woman to shield him from his fate. To protect him from the inevitable. And we celebrate and throw parades when the dictator falls. But we do the exact same thing because of our own insecurity. Adam. He was sincere in his love for Eve. When he disobeyed God, he was sincere and he thought that he was loving her while he was being disobedient. God had his destiny and his salvation, but he didn't have his relationship. Abram thought that if he sinned with Eve and went against God, that God couldn't provide another mate. He thought that he was being a man. But when God showed up in the garden and says in Genesis 3, 9 to 12, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And God says, who told you, you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Here is his chance. 
God is repeating the command he gave him in the beginning. And Adam knows that his next breath could be his very last. And he has a chance to stand up for himself and his woman. The woman you put here. It's her fault and it's your fault. It's not my fault. He hides. Then he blames. All of the practice and knowing the right thing did not help him. What a man. Adam blames the woman even though he professed his love for her while they were in sin. He was acting tough. I eat the apple. But when God shows up. He threw Eve under the bus. She did it. I'm Bennett. I ain't in it. It's her. Trying to use her as a shield because sin causes insecurity. In times of famine, we do what is natural. When a famine comes, we do three things. As men, we do three things. We can perceive it as a threat. We can perceive it as a challenge, or we can perceive it as a loss. Famine gives us an opportunity to act. When we're threatened, we can either fight or flee. Famine creates challenges for us, and it results in a crisis. And depending upon how we dealt with them as a child or as teenagers, will dictate how we respond to them as men. All right? The first time I was about to be evicted, instead of praying, the first thing that went to my mind was how I could get some quick money. That was the first thing that came to my mind. I still know how to do that. But when I got on my knees to pray, I went out selling books. And God paid my rent in two days if I would have robbed a store, I could have gotten the rent and not been evicted, but I would have ended up in jail. We can respond to them in three ways, as a threat, a challenge, or a loss. When, when a famine comes and we perceive them as losses, based upon our experience or temperament, we shrink from responsibility and do like Adam and Abram and get passive aggressive. And we manipulate the people near and dear to us to give us a false sense of security. Let them deal well with me for your sake. Taken to an extreme, we have men committing murder-suicides because of perceived losses or real losses, and we chalk them up that they're too great. Adam, the time to act for your woman had come, but when it came, he essentially said, God, kill her and save me. What a man. But Abram, he trusts God's promises. He trusts that God will give him some real estate. He trusts that God will cover his investments. But he can't trust God to keep his woman. What, what a man. In times of famine, don't rely upon logic. Rely upon faith. Abram never prays. And he commits idolatry because of his own insecurity, and he ends up placing his partner above God. Wouldn't God hear him? 
If he dialed God on the phone, would, would he get a busy signal? When God would see Abram's name comes across the screen and hear his ringtone, would he hit decline? Did God all of a sudden change because he's in a famine? He never consults God when trouble arises. He may not know that God never changes. Abram, you may not know how, you may not know when, but if God did it once, he'll do it again. What he needs to do is not try to figure it out by himself. What he needs to do is surrender. Surrender in military terms is a dangerous thing. It's the moment of laying down one's weapons where you are left defenseless and completely exposed. Some people in wartime are gunned down when they're trying to surrender and wave the white flag. In the Bible, surrender also means to be sacrificed on the altar. The same altar that he was worshiping God on was the same altar he needed to lie down on. Abram, you need to surrender. You risk it all when you have no moves left and you can't deal with it when you're boxed in on all sides and the pride rises up. Let's call on the name of the Lord again and admit defeat. God's saying, if you don't do this this time, I don't know what I'm liable to do. I don't know how to get out of it. I'm rich and increased with goods, but I'm blind, miserable, and naked. That is a man who knows how to surrender. Who cares if she sees? Get vulnerable and naked with God and surrender to him and say, God, I need your help because the famine is too great for me. That is the kind of man I want to be. When he gets to the place and say, God, I surrender all that I am and all that I hope to be, the good and the bad, God, I lay it at your feet. God, I surrender. What a man. I want to be that kind of man. What about you? I want to be the kind of man like Abram, even though he was screwed up. He was spiritual one day and, and, and had, didn't have faith the other day. But the Bible says... He was saved by faith. Abram is saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. We are saved by faith, but our saving faith works because there is a difference between belief and faith. Abram was saved not because he obeyed. Abram was saved because he believed, and because he believed, he obeyed. Some of y'all get. Romans 3, 3 to 5, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, wage are credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but surrenders and who believes that God can justify the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Thank God he saves men by faith and not works. Abram, you were saved by faith. I want to be that kind of man. <sighs> I want to be a man like Abram that not, not only was he saved by faith, but he was saved by grace. And hear me. This is Bible. He was saved by grace and covered for 13 years before he ever obeyed. Roman, back to Romans 4. And in the, paraphr in the message paraphrase, 
we all agree, don't we, that it was by embracing what God did for him that Abraham was declared fit before God. Now think, was that declaration made after he was marked or before he was marked by the covenant rite of circumcision? That's right. It was before he was marked. That means that he underwent circumcision as evidence and confirmation of what God had already done in his life. Before he was made acceptable, God accepted him. Before he was qualified, God took him. Before he did anything, he was fumbling and bumbling for 13 years. But he was still called a friend of God. God had done it long before to bring him to the acceptable standing with himself, an act of God, Abram had embraced his entire life. And it means that Abram is the father of all people who embrace what God does for them while they are still on the outs with God, yet identified as God's in an uncircumcised condition. What this means is that God will accept you when you're outside. And when God accepts you while you're outside, he treats you as though you're on the inside. And while you're fumbling and bumbling with logic and dependence, you're still a friend of God. That's the kind of man I want to be. It's precisely these kind of people who say, God... I'm screwed up. I love you. I've been following you, but I still have issues. He put his wife above God. He put his family above God. He would even put his son above God, but God is still his friend. God accepts this weak, vacillating man with poor boundaries and low self-esteem. 13 years before he had any external representation of being a friend of God. What a man... Turn to your neighbor and says, I'm a friend of God, but please forgive my issues. I'm a friend of God, but please forgive my issues. I am accepted by God. I'm not asking for your approval because I believe God. I am accepted by God. I am a friend of God because God is a friend of sinners. When God sees me, he says, what a man. I am a friend of him because he's rolling with me. Now turn to your other neighbor and says, please be patient with me. God isn't through with me yet. This man has just started walking with God. This same man who was vacillating here, he would become the father of the faithful. This same man here who's giving up his wife would one day be called the friend of God. This same man who's not fighting for his wife would one day sacrifice his one and only son. I want to be that kind of man, a man who might assume some things, a man who might presume some things, a man who gets afraid and afraid to worship in front of my family. I want to be like Abram because I can be a friend of God too. Whenever God would introduce himself to succeeding generations, he would not say he's the God of Abram, he would say he's the God of Abraham. God would never... God would never bring up all of his faults and mistakes because God was covering him in his immaturity and insecurity. God only counted his faith. I want to be that kind of man.
hear me. Abram was repeating the things that he learned from his father. When his father, Terah, died in chapter 11, when God told Abram's father to go from Ur to Canaan, the Bible says he stopped in Haran, and he settled there, and he died over a hundred years later. His father didn't follow God completely. He's repeating the things he learned from his father. He's broken because of his father, but he still is a friend of God. He might have issues he learned as a child, but he knows how to worship. Abram was doing what he learned, but when I have made a mess of my life, when I have compromised my manhood, when I have almost lost my family, my woman, and my possessions, if I can just make it back to that altar, I can be a man of God again. Genesis 13, 3 to 4 says, he leaves, the Bible says he goes up out of Egypt. When he came into Egypt, he was going down, but when he leaves, he's going up. And when he leaves Egypt, the Bible says he goes from Negev, and he goes from place to place until he comes to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been before, and where he had built his first altar there, Abram calls upon the name of the Lord. I can return and start over and go back to the place where God revealed himself to me. After the famine, after the doubt, after all of the wandering and messing up, if I can get back to my place of worship, I can be a man of God again. I can return myself and my family if I can get back to that place of surrender and worship. When he get back to Bethel, The Bible says he begins again. Didn't you know that falling in love with God is falling in love with him again and again and again and again? Christianity is the religion of beginning again. I may have presumed some things. I may have assumed some things. But when I begin to call upon the name of the Lord, God hears my name and remembers my name. And when my name pops up on his screen, he hits accept. And when he begins talking to me again, I fall prostrate and surrender and say, God, you helped me when I was in a famine. Now, hear me, he still has his investments. He still has his real estate. But now he's surrendered and worshiping God again. What a man. Even though he is a broken man. He is a worshiping man. And God says, I will connect my name with this man. And every time I mention him, I will declare what a man. I want to be that kind of man. What about you? One of my favorite movies as a kid was Superman. Maybe it was because of my own parenting my own issues with my parents, but I liked Superman. He came from another planet, which helped because I didn't like where I lived. And, and, and he came from another planet, and he was adopted. He had issues and looked like a loser on the outside, but he had otherworldly stuff on the inside. That, that attracted me. 
There was Superman 1, 2, and 3. But when I got a little older, Superman had rescued the world, and he went back to his home planet. And when he came back, it's in the movie Superman Returns. When he comes back, he comes back to be a hero again. But he didn't. He doesn't come back to a world that, that he left. He comes back to a world that declares, I don't need you anymore. Even Lois Lane won a Pulitzer Prize for an article that says, why the world doesn't need Superman. And he said, I, I, I thought we were tight. You wasn't saying that when Lex Luthor had you by the throat. <laughs> when you were stuck, you needed me, but now you're doing all good. You don't need me anymore. That's, that's all right. He tries to adjust to life as a normal human being. But he's not just a human being. He's a superhero. And as the movie goes on, he, he, he puts on his cape and begins flying around again. And he did something that I thought was prophetic. He goes up on top of the earth. And he begins listening to all of the people's thoughts. Listening to their cries, yea, even listening to their prayers. On the outside, the world doesn't need Superman, but when he stands up on top of the earth, everybody is crying out for help. And when he comes back to earth, he goes and tells Lois Lane something that I thought was awesome. You told me that the world didn't need Superman. You've declared it and everyone believes it. You say the stuff in public, but I hear their cries and their prayers in private. You said the world didn't need me, but I hear something else. And while he was talking to Lois Lane, what he did not know is that Lex Luthor was back and that he had a plan to conquer the world, but this time he had some kryptonite. And he began building a big island out of kryptonite. Superman began feeling weak. He's needed but he becomes weak. And when he gets in a boxing match with Lex Luthor, Lex Luthor stabs him, pushes him off the island, and Superman begins to drown. Lex Luthor captures Lois Lane, captures her husband, and even captures his son. And while Superman is going to the bottom of the ocean, Lois Lane was already delivered, and she jumped into the water and grabbed Superman and pulled him up on the helicopter. They tried to do CPR on him, but his vital signs were getting weak. And when they, they turned him over, they saw a stick of kryptonite in his back. They pulled the kryptonite out, and his pulse started racing again, but his, his oxygen started going through his lungs, but, but he still had issues. But when somebody who was connected by blood began touching him and kissing him. Superman got stronger because his son came and rescued him. And when he got his strength back, he went and grabbed Lex Luthor and he defeats him in the end. When I began to see that, I began to think about Jesus. He came from another world, but he, he was misunderstood by his brothers and his entire family. The Bible says there was nothing in his outward appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was misunderstood even though he was super. And when Satan concocted a plan, and he stabbed Jesus, not with kryptonite, but with sin, the world says, we don't need you because you're not 
helping us anymore. And when Satan put the kryptonite in his side, he thought that Jesus was done. Ah, but, but, but when they put him in the tomb, his father sent his angel to take the kryptonite out and say, son, rise up, be a superhero again. Tread down underfoot all of your enemies and your haters and save the people who don't even want you. Be super for them. And when Jesus came out of the tomb, you see, what Satan didn't know is that sin could kill humanity, but it could never kill divinity. And what's impossible for you is possible for him. Christianity is a rescue religion. We are rescued. We can't think it up. We can't make it happen. We need God to come rescue us, even when we don't want him. Even when we think we don't need him, he shows up and say, I am the man that you're not. And if you connect to me, all of the kryptonite in your life will be thrown away, and you can be the man that I created you to be. If you want to say right now, God, I've been stuck by some stuff. There's some things that's connected to me. I'm strong and I have this bravado, but God, I'm in a famine right now and I need you right now. If you don't do this for me now, not only will I lose myself, but I'll lose my family. If you want to say, God, I want to connect with you as a man, I invite you to stand to your feet. I'm going to pray a special prayer just for you. You need to connect with God again. I told you that God is the author. God is the producer. God is the director. We're just extras. All of the things in our lives, they are shown when the famine comes up. And we respond not with faith but with logic. We do the same thing those dictators did. We put other people in our way and say, God, it's their fault. No, we need to come to the place where we surrender because, God, if you surrendered for me and died in my place before I was good, when I made a mess of my life, why won't God accept you now? If God has been blessing you and covering you and watching out for you, because you're rolling with him when you had nothing. Now, when you need him, he'll accept you again. If you need something special from God, you need to be rescued. I invite you to come to the front. I'm going to pray a special prayer just for you. You need your altar again. If you're in Egypt or leaving Egypt, if you can find your altar, you can begin to call on the name of the Lord again. And he will be what he's always been in your life. You are a friend of God because God is a friend of sinners. And if you identify yourself with him, come to the front. I'm going to pray a special prayer just for you. You need him to rescue you. You want to be the man of God, the woman of God that you were created and designed to be. You need him to be super for you again. Come to the front. I'm going to pray a special prayer just for you. You need him to be super again. If God could do that when he was looking weak, 
when he wasn't looking super, when he was on the cross, what do you think he can do now that he's the risen Lord? What do you think he can do that all of the obstacles are removed? All of the problems and challenges in your life, he is the only remedy. If you need him to be super for you, come to the front. I'm going to pray a special prayer just for you. And if you're a man, bow your heads with me. Father, we come as Abram came. We come because you called us. We thought you had the wrong number and the wrong person, and when you call us, we didn't answer. But you kept calling. And when we finally picked up the phone, we says, what kind of God is this that would call me when I have nothing to give up? And when he, he called me, I, I responded, I was doing good. But when trouble arose, I acted like who I was before. And I thought that he would give up on me. I thought that he would throw me out with the trash. But he had mercy on me and my family. God, we want to get back to that altar again. Where we can be men who surrender to you. Father, there are people here under the sound of my voice. We are weak. We worship one day, we're faithful one day, but the next, we wonder how can we make our ends meet. We've been paying tithe, but now we have engine problems. Lord, what do we do? And instead of going for a payday loan, Father, we're going to fall on our knees and say, God, the good and the bad, I lay it at your feet. God, if you don't help me now, I don't know what I'm going to do. Father, we want to be men and women who surrender. Men and women, when things get tight, we call on your name. And Father, you said when we call on your name, the same one who called us, the same one who led us will come and do it again. Father, we need your promise. We need your presence and we need your power. And we ask that you give it to us as only you can as a gift. And all of those who need God's power in their lives, whether man or woman, boy or girl, just respond by saying amen. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you.